0: you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1. In a moment we will read together verses 12 through 17. There is a saying that came out of the Reformation that goes something like this. If we emphasize the word of God, without the spirit of God, we will dry up. If we emphasize the spirit of God, without the word of God, we will blow up. But if we emphasize both the word of God and the spirit of God, we will grow up. So as we come to God's word today, I pray that we would listen to it and ask for the Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts to its truth so that we might grow up. Would you stand with me as I read Matthew 1, verses 12 through 17. After I finish verse 17, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, Thanks be to God, because we are truly thankful for His word. Hear the word of the Lord. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abayud, and Abayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, whose law is perfect, converting the soul, a sure testimony, giving wisdom to the unlearned, and enlightening the eyes. We humbly implore you, through your boundless goodness, to enlighten our blind intellect to your, by your Holy Spirit, so that we may truly understand and profess your law and live according to it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good things come to those who wait. I don't know where that saying comes from. But we use it to bolster our hope in the times that we have to wait. We are usually trying to say, the waiting is worth it. It will pay off in the end. And we need hope In the waiting, because we generally despise waiting. We are so often impatient people. Waiting annoys us. It stirs up within us discontentment so that we begin to grumble and complain. Given the choice, we would choose not to wait. We live in a culture where we want instantaneous results. It is a we-want-it-now environment built around instant and immediate gratification. But waiting is a part of our lives whether we want it or not. So will good things come to those who wait? Or will we be disappointed by the good things? Will they let us down? This is what I've waited for? Will the grumbling and the complaining that so often accompanies our waiting continue when the waiting is over? Will discontentment rule the day? Or more specifically, will discontentment rule over you? The people of God... Had a period of time where they were waiting. For 400 years, they were waiting between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those 400 years, they had, there had been no word from God, no communication, no revelation, only silence. The people of God were waiting, waiting for God to speak, waiting for God to act, waiting for God to make good on all of his promises. So many good things they were waiting for, but above all, they were waiting for the Messiah. He is sometimes referred to as the long-awaited Messiah, the one Yahweh had promised in the Old Testament, the hope of the nation, the light of the Gentiles, the rescuer and restorer, the one who would bring salvation to God's people. And it was waiting that was tinged with heartache as year after year, century after century, things seemed to go from bad to worse. No sight of any good things coming on the scene in the midst of their waiting. And some people in that 400 years, waiting was all that they ever knew. They didn't have the Messiah come. They died in their waiting. How could they hope? You hear some of this heartache in the script of Fiddler on the Roof. The Jewish people in that movie or play were being removed from their homes by the Russian authorities. As they pack up all of their belongings and move from the little town of Anatevka, one of the characters says to their rabbi, Rabbi, we've been waiting for the Messiah all our lives. Wouldn't this be a good time for him to come? To which the rabbi replies, we'll have to wait for him somewhere else. Meanwhile, Let's start packing. Maybe in these words, we can hear what the people of God were going through between the Old and the New Testaments. When the waiting continues, and when we cannot see its end, God's people begin to cry out with a prayer that we see over and over and over again in the Bible How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, are we going to have to wait? It's a prayer that's tinged with grief and pain and suffering. It's a petition for the Lord to bring relief to his people in the midst of their misery. As we look to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as we look to the fulfillment of God's Messiah, as we are reminded and encouraged that the waiting will come to an end, with the, condensation, or with the condescension of Jesus We will have the certainty and assurance of our waiting and our patience and praying. How long, O Lord, will not go unnoticed by God? He hears us and He will answer us just as He answered His people so long ago. God will answer even us as we pray this question because He has already brought the answer through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. When God sent his son, not only did it bring an end to their waiting, it also brought with it hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not crossing your fingers. It's not ignorant bliss. It's not irrational optimism. Hope is the certainty that God will accomplish perfectly everything that he has promised to do. Good did come to those who were waiting 2,000 years ago. But not only did good come because God came in the flesh, but it also brought the hope that some other things would end as well. When the waiting ended, there was a hope that some bad things would end also. This last part of Jesus' family tree highlights three things that will come to an end with the birth of Jesus. And so they provide hope for us. Hope in our world, hope in our lives. As we read through this this morning together, did it cross your mind, what in the world do all of these names have to do with me? Well, I hope we can see that they do Speak to us this morning. Three things that will come to an end with the birth of Jesus Christ as we read this last part of the genealogy. In your, outline, in your bulletin, there's an outline. If you find that helpful, you can follow along in there. But number one, in the genealogy of Jesus, there is the hope the obstacles to rebuilding God's house will end. There is the hope the obstacles to rebuilding God's house will end. When you read a modern-day genealogy or family tree, you usually read them from the bottom up. At the bottom or at the bottom of the tree trunk is the most recent person whose line and lineage you are tracing. So you work your way from the trunk up and out to the various branches. You start with the most recent and you get to the more distant ancestors and generations. The genealogy of Matthew, however, is the opposite. We are working our way down the tree. We have started with the most distant ancestors and generations in Jesus' line, and we're getting closer and closer and closer to the trunk of the tree. It's interesting, however, that as we move closer and closer to Jesus, the more obscure the names become. We know less and less about the people who are closest to Jesus in his family line. There is one standout, however, in this last section of Jesus' family tree. It's a man by the name of Zerubbabel. He is one in this list who plays a prominent role in God's plan of redemption for his people as it has continued to unfold in the Old, old Testament leading up to the New Zerubbabel means the one sown of Babylon, or a child conceived and born in Babylon. His very name was associated with a pagan nation where his people had been taken. If you remember, in the history of the nation of Israel, Israel was split and divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, was removed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, Judah, was removed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And so, Zerubbabel is one who has lived in Babylon, perhaps grown up in Babylon, maybe even born in Babylon. And he is one of the first to lead his people back to their land, back to Israel. So they were removed from their land in 586 by the Babylonians. But now Zerubbabel is one who is going to lead them back home. Here are some of the highlights of Zerubbabel's life. Upon returning to the land of Israel, he built an altar to the Lord God of Israel so priests could offer burnt offerings on it. He gave himself to obeying the Lord and rebuilding the house of God, the temple. The Lord stirred up his spirit to do that work and told him to be strong as God promised to be with him as the Lord of hosts. And finally, the Lord promised to overthrow and destroy kingdoms And that Zerubbabel would be like a signet ring that was chosen by the Lord. In fact, if you have your Bibles, just turn back a little bit from the book of Matthew to the book of Haggai. It's maybe not a book of the Bible where you spend much quiet time. Between the two Z prophets, between Zephaniah and Zechariah is the prophet Haggai. Just two chapters. But let's look for a moment here. At what is said about Zerubbabel this is verse 23 so the very last verse of Haggai and what's interesting about this particular prophecy so Haggai is a prophet he's come to uh, this nation as they are in exile in Babylon bringing these promises bringing these hopes This prophecy that we are about to read can be dated back to December 18th, 520 B.C. What's today? December 18th, 2022. So, I'm not a mathematician, but roughly 2,541 years ago, this prophecy was proclaimed from the mouth of Haggai. Just as a reminder that what we read in God's word actually happened in history. It was an event. It took place. It could have taken place just like on on a day just like today. So 2,500 years ago, here's what Haggai said. Haggai 2.23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, The son of Sheltiel declares the Lord and will make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What a beautiful promise that God gives to Zerubbabel. And with it comes this imagery of a signet ring. What is that? Well, kings used to have these rings that they would use to seal their proclamations with. Usually they'd stamp that ring in wax or some other kind of of clay to impress that this is a law, this is a declaration that they're making by their own authority. That's why the people would have to follow it, would have to obey it, because this thing that was said by the king was signed by his signet ring. It was a representation of his authority. And so, what is God promising Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, you will reestablish authority. You will reestablish the authority of the kingdom. And why is that so important? Well, if you just take your Bibles and turn back a little bit more to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah twenty two twenty four. 24. Remember in Jesus' line there was a king, this king Jeconiah at the time of the deportation to Babylon. In these verses, he's just called Kaniah. But listen to what it says about him. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die, but to the land to which they long to return there they shall not return. So what happens? As the people are being deported, as they are being removed from their land, God comes to the last king and he says, he says to Jeconiah, Jeconiah, you are like a signet ring that I am ripping off of my hand. The authority that you have is no longer yours. It's going to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. But now with Zerubbabel comes this hope What's going to happen to the people of God? What's going to happen to God's authority? What's going to happen to all of God's promises? They are going to be reestablished in Zerubbabel. He is the signet ring now that comes back. God's authority will be reestablished through Zerubbabel and through his line. The authority of God will come again upon his people. There is hope in him that the Davidic line will continue with the hope of a righteous branch who will perfectly execute righteousness and justice in his rule. That is Jesus Christ. He is the one now who is the final signet ring of God, who has all of God's authority. If you go to the end of the book of Matthew, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. I am God's final and full signet ring. How does that intersect with our lives? If Jesus Christ has been given authority over heaven and earth, That means he has authority in your life and in my life. That means whatever Jesus says, we must do. That means wherever Jesus tells us to go, we must go. Jesus has all authority. He is the final signet ring. He is the reestablishment completely of God's rule and God's reign. And let's just add this other little piece in there. Jesus' authority and rule and reign is good. It is never wrong. It never fails. We might look at authority and say, Ah, authority over me. I don't know if I want that because it might use me, it might abuse me, it might take advantage of me. Jesus' authority will never abuse you. It will never use you. It was always for your good and for your best interest. And it's always for his glory. And so we can trust it. We can trust it with all of our hearts. Because it will never lead us astray. Zerubbabel had another prophecy told about him. If you look in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4. One more point of Zerubbabel's life. It's just one book over from Haggai. Zechariah chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it, then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Do you remember what Zerubbabel did when he came back to the land of Israel? He started to build the house of God. He started to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And what's the promise there to Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, it's because of your great power. It's because of your great intellect. It's because of all that you are going to do that my house is going to be built. Is that what it says? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, Zerubbabel. Take heart. God is going to build his house through you. And look at the obstacles. Look at the obstacles. Verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain And he shall bring forward the the top stone, the capstone, amid shouts of grace, grace to it. What are the obstacles that Zerubbabel would have faced in rebuilding the temple? Well, there was opposition from the outside. People who said, no, no, no. Don't come in here and rebuild this temple. We're going to stop you, Zerubbabel. We're not going to let that happen. But all of those mountains... All of those insurmountable obstacles would become a plane, would be leveled. Through Zerubbabel, God would build his house. God is still building his house. Jesus Christ came. And he said, You see this great temple? It will be destroyed. But three days later, it will be rebuilt. It will rise again from the dead. Jesus is the one who has come, who is the house of God, who is the true temple of God, And who will build God's house? House that is not a temple. a House that is God's people, the church. What does Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are for defense. Gates are for keeping people out. The church of God is not on the defense, the church of God is on the offense. The gates of hell, they are on the defense. Jesus Christ is building his church, and we are on the offense, dear brother and sister. We are going forward as lights into this world to shine against the darkness, to expose the lies and the falsehoods that are in our world, and to herald the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing will stand in Christ's way from building his church. Even when it looks small. Do you see what it says there? For whoever has despised a day of small things shall rejoice. Even when it looks small. Even when it looks insignificant. Even when it looks like there is no way that anything is going to come from this church Jesus says, I am going to complete it. I am going to fulfill the work that I've started. I am going to build my church. That's the idea of we shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. He will complete the work, and all the walls will be level and perfectly in line. It will be a strong and stable house. Because it is a house that's built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes us strong. He is the one who makes us straight and solid. He is the one who gives us strength. He is the one who is working in us. And I go back to this idea Who are you, O great mountain? What mountain? What mountain? What obstacles does the church face in Jesus' promise of building his church? We could think of all of the obstacles out there, all the obstacles that might annoy us. Do we ever consider obstacles in here? They're obstacles in your life and in my life that we don't see, we don't think about. That would say, this mountain is actually obstructing me from getting to God. This mountain is actually keeping me from Christ. This mountain is preventing me from being who God wants me to be from, from loving him with all of my heart and from loving his people that that mountain would be made a plain is there a mountain in your life a mountain where you would say lord please please remove this obstacle and use me in the life of your church to continue to build your church by your grace and for your glory. These last two points quickly. Two, in the genealogy of Jesus, there is the hope the exile will end. In the genealogy of Jesus, there is hope the exile will end. This last section of genealogy reminds us of the heartache that was among the people of God, the deportation to Babylon. Notice that we've heard that a few times. In verse 11, the deportation to Babylon. In verse 12, the deportation to Babylon. In verse 17, the deportation to Babylon. Notice this constant attention given to the people leaving Israel, but it never says in Matthew, they came back never says and they returned it's always just this deportation they've been exiled they've been taken captive now becomes the question who will lead god's people out of exile who will bring them out of their captivity here we come back to zerubbabel he is the one who is the first to lead the Jews back to their homeland. He is the one leading them back home. He is the one through whom there was hope that the worship of God and the kingdom of God would be established. While we know that Zerubbabel did lead the people out of exile physically, there was another problem when they came back to Israel. While they had left Babylon, Babylon had not left them. They no longer were living in Babylon, yes, but Babylon was residing in them. Babylon was residing in their hearts. The real return from exile will only happen through the new David, Jesus Christ. David is again emphasized here in our verses, verse 17. These generations, these 14 generations divided into three different sections, right? So one section, 14 generations. Second section, 14 generations. Third section, 14 generations. Why 14 generations? What's the point of that? Matthew employs something called Gematria. Gematria is taking letters and assigning numbers to letters. So David's name, his Hebrew name, consists of three letters. D, V, D. All Hebrew words are constructed in this way. Three main consonants. David's name, D, V, D. In the Hebrew alphabet, that's the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and then the fourth letter again. And so when you take those three letters or three numbers... Four plus six plus four is 14. So why does Matthew say 14 generations between Abraham, David, David, the deportation, deportation to Christ? Because Matthew is highlighting and emphasizing the point, this is the new David who is about to lead you out of exile. This is the David who will do everything that David was supposed to do. All of the other kings, all the other line out of David was leading them into exile. This is the king who is going to lead you out of exile. This is what happens through salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ leads us out of our exile, out of our captivity to our own sin. He makes it so sin no longer has dominion over us. But we are freed, we are forgiven, we are released, we are now made, remade so that we can obey Him. He takes people who have no home and He gives them a home. Do you have a home? Or are you exiled in your heart from God? Are you separated from him, removed from him? There's good news. You do not have to remain in your exile. You do not have to remain dominated by your own sin. Jesus Christ will lead you out of your exile. He will lead you to himself. He will forgive you of your sin. He will give you the gift of eternal life if you would put your faith and trust in Him. Jesus Christ led His people out of their exile through His death on the cross and through His resurrection again from the dead. The certainty that Jesus will lead you out of your exile is seen in the certainty that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And now, amazingly, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ calls us to become fishers of men. We read that in our scripture reading, didn't we, today? How the Lord is going to send forth fishers who are going to bring people out of their exile. In Matthew, the same thing happens. Matthew 4, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We think of that oftentimes as evangelism. We will go forth, we will evangelize, we'll tell people the good news. And while it does encapsulate that, it's so much more than that. Because how are the disciples hearing that? The disciples are hearing Jesus calling them to participate in his plan of bringing exiles back home. Jesus is inviting them and saying, you are going to go and you are going to go to people who have no home here that live in the land of Israel and you're going to call them out of their sin. You're going to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. You're going to give them hope. You ever struggle with evangelism? Why is that? Why is it that I might struggle with evangelism? Telling other people about Jesus. Do we recognize what it is that Jesus wants us to do? There are people who are exiled. There are people who are captive to their sin. There are people underneath a burden which that if it continues, it will cause them to perish The problem with my evangelism and sometimes our evangelism is that we don't have enough burden for the people that have no home. We're not burdened by those who are lost. We're not burdened by those who are dying. Would we have a renewed sense of wanting to call people home? As we ourselves look towards that final home with Jesus Christ. Almost home. We're almost home. So press on towards that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord. We're almost home. Finally, in the genealogy of Jesus, there is hope evil will end. In the genealogy of Jesus, there is hope that evil will end. Oftentimes, God's word is built on patterns. Here in this genealogy, there's been a pattern. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. And we kind of get lulled into the pattern. We kind of get lulled and fall asleep. And then the pattern is broken. That's what happens here. In verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. It's a shock to the system. (laughs) It doesn't say that, that Joseph was the father of Jesus. No, this pattern is broken. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. The word born here, is what we would call a divine passive verb. It refers to the activity of God. Jesus was not born by the will of man or conceived by the desire of man, but he was born by the will and by the activity of God. This was no ordinary birth, for this is the birth of the Christ the Messiah, God's anointed one. This is the one the people had been waiting for. This is God's activity in bringing about the new Adam, the seed of the woman, the hope of the good news all the way back that we read in Genesis 3.15. There, there would be the seed of the serpent who would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. This final crushing blow to the seed of the serpent, to Satan himself, and to evil comes through the true seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. One of the reasons is to show that he is the true Adam, the true seed of the woman who has come to conquer evil and put an end to it. It's through him that the curse of sin and death will be removed. It's only through him that all of the wrong in this world will be made right. It's only through him that true righteousness and justice will come into this world. It's only through him that there is hope of salvation for all who truly repent and put their faith and trust in him. In the end, because Jesus... Was born, he will win. He will win. He will overcome evil. All good things or good things will come to those who wait. Are you ever jaded in your waiting? Do you ever get discouraged or cynical in your waiting? Will Jesus really build his church? Will exile really end? Will evil ever be no more? Will the loved one who doesn't know Jesus, who I I long for them to know Jesus, will they ever be saved? Will all of the problems in my life ever come to an end? Will all of the relationships that have been broken ever be restored? Will, will all of the waiting for this job opportunity, will it ever come to anything? What are you waiting for in your life? It seems sometimes as if we go from one season of waiting to another season of waiting to another season of waiting and we're always waiting and we wonder, is there ever any good that will ever come? Ultimately, our waiting is now waiting for Christ's return. In Titus chapter 2, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our glory, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are waiting. We are waiting. We are waiting for so many things. But ultimately, we are waiting for Jesus to come again. You, We're waiting for his return. We're waiting for that blessed hope. I don't know all of the other answers to your waiting. I don't know what the outcome will be. I don't know if what you want to happen will happen. But I know in the end, Jesus will come again. And it will be better and more glorious than anything you could ever want now. And so there's hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the hope that comes to us through Jesus Christ. God, when all seems lost, when we don't know if we can hope anymore, when we don't know if our waiting will amount to anything, may we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him went to the cross so that we might be saved. Father, if there's anyone here today who is in exile, held captive by their sin, separated from you, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day of repentance and renewal, may today be the day when they are called home and they can know that they will be accepted into your family and receive eternal life. Father, may we apply your word to our hearts today. that we might believe your word and live out your word in this dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.